We're continuing on a series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled A Faith That Moves You Forward. And while you're getting to Nehemiah 4, I want to just say a special thank you to uh, Pastor Michael for preaching last week. I wasn't able to be here, but did listen to it and thankful for his encouragement and, and faithfulness in pushing us to consider, consider missions and consider uh, the power behind it, the purpose, why we do what we do. And so I hope it was an encouragement to you. This morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4 in its entirety, and I want to invite you, I know you just sat down, some of you, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to read the entire chapter here at the beginning, <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 4. So beginning in verse 1, this is, what, this is what Nehemiah records. He says, when Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we, re we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. When Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted to together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who live nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, their spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles of the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and homes. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and they held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders has his sword strapped around his waist while he was building and the one who sounded the ram's horn was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out. We are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear, or whenever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. This morning, I want us to consider from Nehemiah 4, 
this idea of a faith that endures. Faith that endures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength. Because I desperately need it, Lord, to preach your word to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Faith that endures. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember a lot of the lessons that I learned as a child, lessons that my parents taught me. Uh, my parents were pretty good teachers. I got to throw that out there since they're in the room. But no, they were, they were pretty good teachers. And I remember to this day most of the lessons they tried to teach me if I was paying attention to them because they've shaped me. They've made me into the adult I am. Let me give you one of the lessons. Uh, one of my responsibilities as a child was to do the dishes. Now, we didn't have a dishwasher like I have in my house. We were the dishwasher. So we were responsible to scrape the food, rinse the dishes, wash the dishes, rinse the soap off of them again, dry them, and put them away. That was one of our responsibilities. And I'd do that, and if I'm honest, usually I would rush through it because there's a thousand other things I'd rather be doing as a child than washing the dishes. But I'd accomplish those tasks. I would scrape, rinse, wash, rinse, dry. Then I'd take off and I'd go do something else. And often, without fail, about 10 minutes later, I'd hear the sweet voice of my mom from the kitchen saying, Michael, can you come here, please? And so I'd go to the kitchen and I'd hear the familiar words. My mom just said they weren't sweet. I heard her. <laughs> you were sweet, mom. Uh, but I'd hear those familiar words, you're not done yet. And she would just point to the sink. That's all she would do. She would just point to the sink. And I knew exactly what that meant. Because I'd look at the sink and there would still be crumbs everywhere on the counter. There'd still be soap studs, water spread throughout the counter. Sponge was left in the middle of the sink. And my mom would say the same thing to me over and over. Make sure you finish the job. You know, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, Solomon reminds us of that same simple idea. And he says, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. I've always appreciated that verse and the lesson my parents tried to teach me because it's a helpful reminder that it doesn't always matter if you start something. Often what matters is if you finish it. That patience and seeing something through is better than the pride of starting something but then failing to finish. And sometimes... A failure to finish will actually undo any of the good work that was being done in the process simply because you didn't finish the job. And sadly, I've seen this play out in people's lives, and you have too. You know, the Bible rightly calls us to honor those where honor is due. And so throughout my journey as, as a Christian, throughout my journey as a pastor, there have been men and women that I have looked up to in the faith that I have admired that I have held in high, high esteem. And one of the heartbreaking realities is that for many of them, and you might know some of them too, I've watched just towards the end of individuals' lives, as, the end, as they come to the end of their ministries, they lose it. They fail, they fall, some moral failure comes to light, something that seems to undo everything that had been done up until that point. It's been heartbreaking to watch many of the people that I've admired fail to end well. But can I tell you, that's not a novel problem. It's not a novel problem. It's actually a very old problem. In a very real sense, Elijah didn't finish well. He didn't finish well. You remember the story of Elijah, right? Prophet of God. He had that incredible episode at Mount Carmel where he stands against all the prophets of Baal. They set up two altars, right? 
And they said, we're going to see whose God is real here. And so the prophets of Baal dance around. They cut themselves. They try to get their God to send down fire to burn up the offering, and it never happens. And then Elijah shows up, says a simple prayer, and the fire of God comes down and consumes his altar and everything around it. I mean, that's a mountaintop moment of ministry, right? Like, like I'm shooting for that mountaintop moment at some point where the fire of God comes down and we're like, that's my God. And then just a short time later, he's hiding in a cave, afraid of a woman who threatened him, believing that God has abandoned him and that God can't come through. He didn't end well. Moses didn't end well. He didn't. I mean, this is the man that God used to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. This is the one who, who, who God worked through him and, and, and his staff to part the Red Sea. They walk across dry land. This is the one who, who God continuously provided for. And at the end of his life, it's as something as simple as striking a rock that disqualifies him from entering the land of promise. He didn't end well. And what all of this points to is this needed reminder that we have to cultivate a faith that endures that makes it to the end with a faith that's still intact. Because remember, the goal is not just to make it to the end of this life for us as Christians. The goal is to make it to the end of this life with a faith that is still vibrant and intact and active. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we have a lesson of what it looks like to have a faith that endures. When challenges arise, when hardship comes, and when one is tempted to give up or give in what it looks like to endure in faith. So here's my hope this morning. My hope is that as we examine Nehemiah's enduring faith in the midst of great difficulty, that we will be encouraged with some practical truths along the way. Because let's call it what it is. This lesson of an enduring faith would not be riddled throughout all the pages of Scripture if God didn't know that we were going to face some stuff in our lives that would tempt us to give up. We've got to acknowledge that first, that none of us have made it to the point where we aren't tempted to throw in the towel. And we need these reminders of what it looks like to have a faith that endures. I also want to remind you this morning that we should expect opposition because things of significance like our very faith won't be built without opposition coming along the way. To quote one commentator, he says, The powers of darkness will not sit idly by while the people of God rise up and build. So we will face opposition, and so we have to cultivate a faith that endures. And so I pray that this will be an encouragement to you this morning. So there are three things that I want to draw out from this chapter, and this is such a beautiful and rich chapter. There is, I told a brother earlier, I feel like my brain's so scattered with this sermon because there's like a thousand different things that I want to talk about. One of the hardest part of, of writing a sermon is not coming up with stuff to say, it's finding out what not to say. Because the Bible is rich, and so I'm going to try to, as best I can, laser in on what I believe the Holy Spirit is pointing me to laser in on. But, but if you want to chop it up more about Nehemiah 4, there is so much good stuff here. But I want to give you three things, three, three pictures of what it looks like to have a faith that endures. Here's the first thing. A faith that endures focuses on the source. A faith that endures focuses on the source. Look, look with me again at verses 1 through 3. It says, when Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? 
Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And then Tobiah, the Ammonite who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. So we left off two weeks ago in chapter 3 with with the people of God, with the Jews working on all the different sections of the wall. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And chapter 4 takes place while chapter 3 is happening. So as they're rebuilding in chapter 3, all of these events of chapter 4 are unfolding. So as the people of God are rebuilding, Sambalot, one of the governors of Samaria, a nearby region, gets wind that the building has begun and he's furious. Well, why, why he's furious is interesting. See, he knows that the Jews regaining control over Jerusalem will weaken his power. And in his mind... Jerusalem being built threatens his own kingdom. And this, this is a needed reminder for us. We talked about it some two weeks ago, that when we are committed to the flourishing of God's kingdom on earth, it will lead to opposition because it challenges other kingdoms. I mentioned in the introduction that throughout Scripture, there are calls to endure because God knows that pursuing his kingdom will inevitably place you in conflict with other kingdoms. I mean, I'll give you a few examples. James 1.12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Our faith will place us in positions where endurance is necessary. So be encouraged by that. Like if right now, if you're in a season where you feel like all you are doing is enduring, that is evidence that your faith is at work. I mean, in Nehemiah, their faithfulness to God puts them in direct conflict with the surrounding political powers to be in. It's not because they were doing anything wrong. It's because they were doing everything right. And so Sambalot, as a result of this, begins to mock them. Did you notice he's doing it in front of other people, it says in verse 2, before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. But again, I want you to pay close attention to what he says. What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? But then Tobiah, another governor, joins in in verse 3, and he says, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Now, there are two things I want you to notice about this mocking. Here's the first. Make no mistake that their mocking is real opposition. And here's why I say this. Some of you have heard that old saying. Maybe you, you've said it to your kids or you say it to yourself. Sticks and stones may break my bones, right? But words will never hurt me. I can't support this. I have no evidence for this whatsoever. But I'm convinced that whoever made up that parable lived like on a mountain by himself somewhere and never encountered people. Because I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to get some wounds in my life, to be hurt by people. And I can tell you that some of my deepest scars, some of my most visceral pain is not the result of somebody putting their hands on me. It's the result of things they've said to me. That's why God in the book of James describes the tongue as a small part of the body which has 
powerful potential. The potential to do catastrophic harm or to do immeasurable good. Our words matter and the words of others matter. And I want you to hold on to that because I'm going to come back to that at the end of this point. But here's the main thing I want you to see about their mocking. Notice what they are focusing on. Now, this is interesting, right? What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life? If a fox climbed up on the walls, they would fall down. I want you to see this. Don't miss it. The opposition is focused on the physical resources of the people. Tracking with me? We in here, right? They're focused on the manpower. They're focused on the stones. They're focused on the, the, the builder's ability to build. They see this task of faith as futile because they look at what the people have to work with and they say there ain't no way this can happen. But that's not what Nehemiah focuses on. You see it even back in chapter 2. Right? You can go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, when Nehemiah was first mocked by Sambalot before they even started building. And Nehemiah responds to their insults by saying, the God of the heavens is the one who will grant success. Not the builders, not the stones, not the materials, not the architectural plans. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. So watch this. While the mockers focus on the resources they have to accomplish the task and see it as impossible, Nehemiah focuses on the source of the task and realizes it's as good as guaranteed. All right, let me try it this way, since that didn't do it. Because that's a good point. Our faith has never been a but-I faith. I'll do what God wants me to do, but I have to have the money. But I have to have the time. But I have to have the gifting. But I have to have the education. But I have to know the words to say. Our faith has never been a but-I faith. Our faith has always been a but-God faith. You might not have the money, but God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You might not have the time, but God is the one who holds space and time in his hands. You might not have the gifting, but God is the one who dispenses gifts as he sees fit. You might not have the education, but God uses what is foolish to shame the wise. You might not have the words, but God can put words to your groaning. And what I'm trying to say is that our faith has never been a faith that rested on the resources of men. Our faith has always been a faith that presses into the source and believes that the God who allows us faith, who can strengthen our faith, and the God who keeps us in the faith, that God is able. And if he has promised, he will be faithful. And if he has called, he will equip. But you have to remember, Nehemiah wasn't just assuming that God would rebuild Jerusalem. He knew it was going to happen. Because this is the very thing that they prophesied about back in Isaiah some 300 years earlier. In Isaiah 44, verses 26 and 27, who confirms the message of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, she will be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt and I will restore her ruins. I mean, this is what the people of God were singing in Psalm 147 before it even happened. Hallelujah, how good it is to sing to our God for praise is pleasant and lovely. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wound. Nehemiah believed that the source of his faith, God himself, was faithful to do what God said he would do. Which means Nehemiah knew Jerusalem would be rebuilt. So when he weighed inadequate resources against the source itself. 
Nehemiah was convinced that God was able. You see it even in his response to the mocking in verses 4 through 6. Because after Tobiah makes his little joke about a fox climbing up on the, on the walls and them falling down, the text transition, it gives us no warning. It doesn't say then Nehemiah and the people pray. It just goes right into their prayer. Nehemiah just starts praying. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own head and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So Nehemiah believes that the God who is sufficient to provide is also sufficient to vindicate. Let me make it plain for you. Nehemiah doesn't feel the need to argue with them about what they're saying. He doesn't need to justify his calling to be the one to rebuild Jerusalem. He believes that God will vindicate him and he continues to work. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. Now, before I move on, I want to say something. I mentioned a moment ago that words can do real damage or they can do incredible good. Words can call into question our faith and what we are called to do or be the source of encouragement by which we press on. But let me say this. I've had some enemies in my life. You know, the Bible doesn't say you can't have enemies. It just tells you what to do when you have those enemies. I've had some enemies in my life. I've had some enemies who have challenged my faith. I've had some enemies who have questioned in order to hurt the assignment that I believe that the Lord has given me. But can I tell you who often has the harshest words? And it's somebody in this room. Some of y'all got real nervous right now. No, it's not my wife. It's me. You see, we have to be careful because sometimes the very person that calls into question what God has called us to do is ourselves. That's why scripture teaches us time and time again that we have to learn to not just listen to ourselves, but to speak truth to ourselves. I had this conversation with a brother this week and pointed him to Psalm 42, the very psalm that I read and quoted at the call to worship this morning. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for for you, God. I thirst for for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I poured out my heart, how I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. What I love about this psalm is that this, the psalmist has every reason to doubt, right? Things aren't going well in his life. People are talking about him, questioning his God, questioning God's faithfulness. He's starting to question, but rather than just listen to himself, he begins to speak the truth to himself. Why are you downcast on my soul? No, I'm going to put my hope in God, and I will still praise him. And he goes on because he believes that God will continue to deliver. And some of us in this room right now have to get in the habit of stop listening to yourselves and start speaking to yourselves because you can be your own greatest enemy. But the truth of God is not just good for the world out there. It's good for your own soul. Sometimes you have to be the very voice of reason. So Nehemiah reveals that a faith that endures is a faith that's focused on the source. And that's God himself. But second, I want you to see this. A faith that endures prepares for hardship. So when the mocking doesn't stop the work, the opposition actually amps up. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, When Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. 
they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to throw it into confusion. Now jump down to verse 11. And our enemies said they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. And when the Jews who live nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So now, moving beyond simply words, the Jews are being physically attacked. Now, it's interesting to note that in verse 7, more individuals arrived. Did you catch that? So not only is it Sambalot and Tobiah, but now we have the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. So what that means, based on the location of all of those people, is that Jerusalem is now facing attacks from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west. So watch this. They are being harassed on all sides. And some of you know exactly what that feels like this morning, where it seems like it doesn't matter how faithful you are trying to be, you're getting it from everywhere. You're getting it from your home. You're getting it from your job. You're getting it from your friends. Wherever you look, it seems like opposition is coming. Can I just remind you that when you are feeling the pressure from every angle, that is not necessarily a sign that something needs to change. Maybe it's an affirmation that you're right where God wants you to be. Because you know it as well as I do. It's often in those situations where there seems like there is no way out when God shows up and shows off in a way that only he can do. But I want to be clear. What I am not saying is that in those moments that you are feeling it from every angle, you do nothing and simply wait for God to do something. Nehemiah gives us an example. Notice this in verse 9. It says, so we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. So two things happen when the physical violence is made known to Nehemiah. First, Nehemiah does what Nehemiah always seems to do. He does the right thing. He prays. Now, I don't want you to miss this. I know Nehemiah prays a lot. We can't make it through a chapter without Nehemiah praying, and we can be tempted to just skip over that. But it says something about a person when their first response is to pray, when their first response is to take things to the Lord. Because you know, as well as I do, some of us are tempted to go to him. I'll give you all the benefit of the doubt. Third, fourth, it could never be the last resort, could it? Well, we're going to try to exhaust all our resources first because we're actually thinking like Sambalot and Tobiah that if I've got the resources, I can accomplish what God wants me to accomplish. And so we'll go to that first, but then those fail. Well, then let me just go to the community first, right? Maybe, maybe Newbury can help me out of this. No, they can't do it. Well, let me go to my family. Maybe my family can get me out of this. No, they can't do it. Well, let me go to my bank account. Maybe my bank account can get me out. No, that won't do it. Okay, I guess I'll pray. But it says something about a person when their first response is to drop to their knees and plead for God to move. So it begs the question of us, who do we turn to first? But I want you to note this, and this is important. Nehemiah's prayer does not lead to inactivity. It's the catalyst for his actions. Because after he prays, what does the text tell us he does? He stations a guard. Nehemiah's belief in the sovereign will of God was not a cause for inactivity. It was the reason for his activity and his planning. Because he believes, and he says it in verse 20, that our God will fight for us. In other words, God is still going to accomplish his plans, but for Nehemiah, it's not an excuse to not prepare and plan. So I'm going to push in here a little bit. Some of us have taken the doctrine of God's sovereignty to a place that it was never meant to go. The reality that God is sovereign is not a license for you to do whatever you want to do because God's just going to accomplish his will anyway. That's foolishness. That's not faith. 
Because God has always willed that a humanity made in his image would have a legitimate degree of freedom to make decisions, to plan and to prepare and to actually walk out their faith. God has also willed a world with cause and effect. That if you make this choice, this thing will happen because God wills that there be cause and effect in this world. Sometimes we want to chalk up hard outcomes to God's sovereignty when God is looking at you saying, but you made the choice or lack thereof. What I'm trying to get at is this. There is some hardship that could be overcome if you and I would do the work of actually preparing for it. I think so often we think of God's sovereignty like a chess match. I'm trying to explain it to you. Some of you are like, what are you talking about God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty is his rule and reign over everything. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything that takes place. We got to understand what that looks like. God's sovereignty is not a chessboard. Right? Where we know God's going to win the game and we're just pawns being moved around. And sometimes we'll be sacrificed. Sometimes we move forward. Sometimes we get back. But it's completely out of our hands because God's going to do whatever God wants to do. I think God's sovereignty is more like a father who takes his child on a walk at the park. And at the other side, there's a great pond where they're going to enjoy the view. And we're going to get to that view, but he's going to say, hey, if you jump on that curb, you might fall off and skin your knee. We're still going to get there, but it's your choice. Hey, don't run. You might run into somebody and knock them over and knock you down, but it's your choice. I think we've narrowed God's will down so much that we miss the fact that God allows for legitimate freedom, for planning, and for purposes to to play out. Let me give you a a, a practical example. I I had a a buddy of mine in seminary. Love this guy. Still love this guy. We're good friends today. They, um, They have four children. Um, he showed up in class one day. He was tired. He was tired. I was like, hey, man, you doing all right? He's like, man, like, my wife and I have been talking, and we, like, we think we're done. We think we're done with kiddos. I was like, all right. Like, your quiver's full. Like, good job, brother. Like, four. You got more than me. Uh, I, I actually, I, yeah, I think I had two kids at that time. But anyway, I was like, that's great. I said, so, so what are y'all thinking? What are you going to do? And he said, this was his response. He said, well, nothing. We just, we, we just prayed to God. We believe that he's going to give us the desires of our heart, that he's sovereign over this. And I said to him, I said, well, brother, prepare for your next kid. Like, that's not the way God's sovereignty works. It's just not. Like, God allows us to make choices because there are cause and effect in this world. Now, God is still sovereign because you might make a choice and God might say, nah, you're going to have more kids. And that happens. But God's sovereignty is not a, like we're going to do nothing and God's just going to do what he wants to do. That's not, that's not the purpose of that doctrine. It is a, a reminder to us that we're going to make choices. Some of them will be wise. Some of them will be foolish. But the good news of God's sovereignty is that anything that does happen is allowed by him. And he can intervene and stop anything, but he doesn't have to. So I know we, we kind of went a little sideways. Let me, let me bring it back here. What, what Nehemiah reveals is that a dependence on God's sovereignty is not an excuse not to plan and prepare. He prepares. He prays. And he puts a guard on the wall. He says, we're ready to fight, but we're believing that God will fight for us. See, notice this. It says in verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew their schemes and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. It was God who frustrated their plan by making it known to Nehemiah. But watch this. It was Nehemiah's decision to plan and visibly place a guard on the towers that prevented future attacks. But there's something else worth noting. Look here, verses 16 and 17. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. 
Now, I want you to see this. The people who were working, who were rebuilding the wall for the glory of God, were able to continue working because they were prepared to fight even though they weren't actively fighting. Do you see that? They were prepared to fight even though they weren't actively fighting. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with another. The workers were able to continue their work of faith because they were prepared to fight even though they weren't fighting. Another way of saying it is like this. Nothing will stop you from fulfilling the task that God has given you faster than you being unprepared for hardship that comes with the task. That you enter into it to do the work of God, but you never prep for the fact that there is a real enemy who doesn't want to see it come to fruition. Nothing would have stopped the building faster than having to run home to get their weapons because they didn't have it when they needed to fight. Listen to me, church, we have a cunning enemy. We have a cunning enemy when it comes to us walking out our faith. The Bible refers to him as a, as a, a, a lion prowling around seeking someone to destroy. And Satan is good at destroying. He's good at it. And some of us, the reason we struggle so much in our faith is because we don't prepare for the battle before the battle's already on us. Some of you know this very real in your life when it comes to sin that you are struggling with. Because you never prepare for the temptation until the temptation comes upon you. And at that point, it's too late. And you know it as well as I do that time and time again, you will fall. Because, because we got to take those good moments, the moments when we're not being attacked, to actually prepare for the fact that our faith will place us in opposition. It's foolishness to think that we can live this not life and not face the hardship that Jesus promised would come our way. And I know, I know the tendency when, when life finally lets you like catch a break, you want to just like stop for a second. I get that. I think that the Lord, the Lord has grace for that and will allow you to catch your breath, but it's not licensed to then do nothing to prepare for what's coming next because we, our faith is worked out in seasons and we move from one season to another and every season has its own difficulty, its own hardship, its own rest and its own joy and we can't just prepare for the rest and the joy and not prepare for the hardship and the trial. So a faith that endures is a faith that prepares for hardship. It trusts in the sovereignty of God. It leans on the source while simultaneously preparing for the hardship that will inevitably come. Here's the final truth I want you to see this morning, and I'm, I'm in my seat. A faith that endures remembers God's faithfulness. Notice that in the face of all the frustrations and setbacks that Nehemiah and Israel had experienced, notice that they persisted. They persisted. They see the clear hand of God at work. They strap on swords and shields and spears and bows, and they go back to work. But the curious thing about endurance is this. It's that our endurance moving forward depends on a remembrance that looks back. A remembrance of the character and the faithfulness of God. What drove Nehemiah and the men back out on that wall was not that they had developed better weapons, that they knew how to fight better than the other people. It wasn't that they were better prepared or had built enough of the wall to defend themselves. They went back out on the wall because they had a confidence and a remembrance of the faithfulness of God. We see this confidence there in verse 20. Our God will fight for us. This is what Nehemiah calls them to in verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. It's interesting I mean, think about it. It's interesting when you think about how many battles Israel had been in up until this point. This is not Israel's first fight. It's not. 
They were involved in battles, battles that required armor and weapons and strategy. Yet every battle of Israel that you look at, their success or loss never came because of the fullness or absence of their weapons. This calls to mind what David cries out facing Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Do you remember that? David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him, and today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Goliath trusted in weapons and his experience. David expressed a confidence in the character, power, and plan of God. In Nehemiah, these men walked back out on the wall with that same confidence that God was before them. But now again, notice God works through means. They didn't prance out there with lemonade and ice cream cones because they knew that God had it. They came back with weapons of war. David killed Goliath not with clever words and a good argument. He threw an actual rock at Goliath's face. And our, abund- our, our endurance doesn't mean we grab smoothies and put our feet up and wait for God to do his thing. We work, we labor, we prepare, we plan and strive, but we do We do all of this with a confidence that the God of the universe delivers and saves his people. That God has time and time again proven if he calls you to it, he will be faithful to see you through it. So our ability to endure requires our involvement, but it is grounded in an eternal faithfulness and remembrance of God's God's goodness to us. It's a a remembrance of the fact, the truth that God has never failed he will always see you through. But I got to make one thing clear. I want to point this out. The fact that God will see us through does not guarantee that things will immediately get better. Man, this point just knocked me off my feet this week. I'll just tell you, it might not mean anything to you. So I'll preach to myself and I'm fine with that. Because you notice how in the text that things got worse before they got better. I don't like that. I don't like that. Because it started with, not, with mocking and Nehemiah prayed. And the way we want the story to read is that after Nehemiah prayed, it got better because God showed up. But it didn't get better. God showed up, but it didn't get better. Because God delivered them from the mocking right into threats. Then Nehemiah prayed again, and God delivered them from the threats, but he delivered them right into violence. And it got worse before it got better. The church, I... I felt that in a much lighter, lower, lesser way this week. I'm going to be transparent. With, like, I am preaching from a deficit this morning. A deficit. I know because I talked to three of them. Three of your four pastors wish we weren't here right now. We're just going through it. Like the, the, this past weekend, the reason that I didn't make it to church was that I, just, I didn't have it in me. And by God's grace, I was already scheduled not to preach. So, so, so like many of you, right, storm rolls through Friday. Let me just give you the play-by-play real quick. This is about me. It's going somewhere. There's a point to this. It's not just, oh, pitiful Michael. Like, we get that. Storm rolls through. Our basement starts flooding. We have a finished basement, so that's no good. And I'm trying to, like, keep up, suck this water out of our basement. I'm trying. I think I got, like, 140 gallons out with it still just filling. I was like, forget it. Like, I can't do this until the rain stops. So I did the hardest thing for a guy to do, and I left it alone. <laughs> I left, I walked away. 
And in my head, the whole day, I'm like, oh, this is going to be brutal. And so I am praying that the Lord stops the rain. And you know what happened? The rain stopped. And I go downstairs. I'm like, Lord, thank you that the rain has stopped. And 30 seconds later, the power went out. No joke. I got to get more specific with my prayers, family. That's the problem. I got to get more specific. I said, okay. I'm not going to be able to get this together. So, Lord, give us a place to go that has power. This is no exaggeration. About 30 seconds after that, Thea, my daughter who had been battling hives all week, says, Dad, something's wrong. And I go and look at her, and her mouth is beginning to swell shut, which is what they said you have to watch out for and take her to the ER immediately because if airways closed, she's in trouble. And they were closing. So we had somewhere to go that had power, and we went to the ER and spent a good portion of Friday night in the ER. Now, mind you, my wife's out of town for all of this. She's in Texas, so she's hearing all of this via text message. So I killed it. Um, so get out of the hospital. We go to my parents' house. By God's grace, they have power. We stay there. I'm praying that the Lord would just kind of get our family back together and that we would have a moment to rest. And then our family comes back together, and Leah gets food poisoning right when she gets home. And so she's laid up. And it just seemed like the Lord answered prayer, but it went from one problem to another. Now, I know that that is a lighter, lesser, not nearly as lofty vision of Scripture, but I think you see that pattern of Scripture because in a higher, holier, heavier level, all throughout Scripture, we got to take into account that things often get worse before they get better. But the goodness and the faithfulness of God has never been dependent on it getting better right away. Egypt was bad. Egypt was bad. But before they made it to the promised land, they had to go into the wilderness. You remember what happened when they were in the wilderness? The wilderness made Egypt look like Palm Springs. And they wanted to go back. And they had to get worse before it got better. David was anointed king. But before he ever got to be king, he was on the run for his life. Constantly looking over his shoulder to see if Saul was behind him, sleeping in caves. The king of Israel sleeping in caves, living on the run. This likely isn't what David thought it was going to be like when God said, you're going to be the king of Israel. And it got worse before it got better. You look at the story of God's people back in the book of Judges, you would think that the people would start to learn from their failures, but it gets much worse before it gets better. But I'll do you one better. For Jesus, it got worse before it got better. Because he started off teaching and they didn't like his teaching, so it got worse. He started healing and they didn't like how and when he was healing so it got worse. They plotted against him, and after they plotted against him, they arrested him, and still it got worse. And they had a sham trial where they convicted him, though he had done nothing wrong, and it got worse. They mocked him, and they ridiculed him, and then it got worse. Then they stripped him naked, and they beat him bloody, and still it got worse. They made him carry a cross up a hill called Golgotha, and still it got worse. And when he got up there, they put nails in his feet and nails in his hands, but it got worse because they put a spear in his side. But then it got even worse because all the sin of all of those who God would save was laid on him and it got worse because on that cross he died and was placed in a borrowed tomb and he stayed dead on Friday and he stayed dead on Saturday but then early Sunday morning it got better because Jesus Christ rose from the dead 
And he walked out of that tomb with power and with victory and with our salvation secured in his hand. And the resurrection declares to us that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And sometimes it's got to get worse before it gets better. But a faith that endures is a faith that looks back on the faithfulness of God. And because it looks back, it's willing to move forward, knowing and believing that if it gets worse before it gets better, I'm going to endure because what God has in store for me is better than anything this world has to offer me. And church, let us be a people that cultivate a faith that endures. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to be a people that has cultivated such a deep faith in you that we, we lean into you, Lord. We trust you, the author and perfecter of our faith, but we prepare for the fact that following you is never going to be easy. But in those moments when it just gets so unbearable, we remember that you are a God who is faithful and has time and time again proven that faithfulness. And if we ever doubt, we look to Jesus as a picture of the fact that God you won't leave us in the pit and you won't leave us in the tomb, but resurrection is coming. Give us grace to hold fast to you and to endure to the end with a faith that doesn't enter glory limping, but that is vibrant and holding fast to you, knowing and believing that you will always hold fast to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.